Amen. Please be seated. Before we open God's Word together, let's pray. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, that your work for us did not end at your ascension, but that you rule and reign in heaven, you live to intercede for us. So come now and do your prophetic work, reveal to us by your word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Do it, Holy Spirit, in spite of the sin of the preacher and in spite of the sin of the hearers. Do it for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Our text tonight is Romans 3, verses 1 through 4. Hear God's word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Amen. All men are like the grass and all our glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. Well, in the last chapter, in chapter 2, Paul, our author, has been going after the idols of the Jewish heart. He addressed their possession of the law as God's people. He addressed their election by God as his people and God calling them to himself. He addressed, lastly, at the end of chapter 2, their reception of the sign of circumcision. And you remember, he's been showing them all through chapter 2 that even though they had all these things, they still need the gospel just as much as anyone else. All of this argument was stemming from chapter 1, verse 17, when he writes that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness is needed, but we don't have any. Paul says the way you're going to get it is through faith, and you're going to receive a righteousness that's not your own, an alien righteousness. And what he does all through chapter 2 is he looks at the, the hypothetical Jew that he's arguing with, and he, he says, look, that righteousness doesn't come through your possession of the law. That righteousness that you need doesn't come through your uh, having been chosen by God as a special people to him. It doesn't come through the sign of circumcision that you have received. And, and now as he gets into chapter 3, he anticipates more objections from the hypothetical Jew that he's arguing with. Paul is considering, after this previous chapter, what might still come up in a Jewish mind? What's still there for him to smack down as they object to their need of the gospel? 
So tonight we're really just jumping straight in. Look at verse 1. This is the question that he imagines is on their mind. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or, or what is the value of circumcision? It's important to consider this question for just a moment. If the Jew wonders, if, if possession of the law and of the Passover and circumcision, if, if these things will not save me, then what's the point in having them? A Christian who's paying attention may quickly dismiss this thought, but we have to be careful that there are many in the world around us still, maybe even in our midst, that, that believe these types of things, that, that being baptized and hearing a sermon on a regular basis and participating in the supper of our Lord, they may believe that this is enough to save them, just as the way the Jew thought that their signs and ordinances were enough to save them. But we've seen it again and again. Dependence on those outward ordinances for salvation is foolishness. It's not the outside of you that needs saving. It's not that if you can just wash it off with some water and nourish your body with some bread and wine, that, that the Lord uses that to make you all better. It's not the outside of us that needs saving. It's the inside of us that needs saving. And so the, the, the only thing that will save is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit working up in us faith to trust on Jesus Christ alone, resting in the righteousness that he provides. For an unbeliever, hear this, for an unbeliever, whether an unbelieving Jew that Paul's arguing with or an unbelieving Gentile or an unbelieving person today, the, the outward signs of God's grace, right? Passover, circumcision, all the other things in the Old Testament that, that pointed forward for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the outward signs of God's grace for an unbelieving person do nothing more than what white paint does for a tomb, it makes it look presentable for a moment. But what's still on the inside? It's just full of dead men's bones. And, and that is precisely why Paul repeatedly presses this point. That trusting in outward signs is a dangerous game. Because it will certainly lead to death. There is no salvation in our baptism. There is no salvation in the table. But does this mean, this is the question that's being asked, does this mean that these outward signs are useless? That's what the question's asking. Well, then what advantage has the Jew with all these things that he has to bring? What is the value of circumcision? Paul says it there at the beginning of two, much in every way. And this is familiar to us. He said it towards the end of chapter two. He told us in verse 25, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's he mean? We've talked through it. If you're, if you're walking in the covenant, circumcision for the Jew is of value because it functions as a, a, a proper sacrament, and sacraments are intended, as our larger catechism instructs us, to signify, seal, and exhibit to those within the covenant the benefits of Christ's mediation. This is to say that circumcision for the Jew 
and baptism and the Lord's Supper for us today are meant, as we look at them, not, not to save us, but to remind us of our salvation. They're meant to strengthen us and encourage us in our walk. They're meant to increase our faith as we remember who God is and what He's done. They're, they're meant to oblige us to obedience and remember the life to which God's called us. That They're meant to remind us of our love and communion with one another and also remind us of the distinction that we have as God's people apart from the world. That was the point of circumcision. And so in order to show even more the value of what the Jews were given, Paul, Paul opens up a little bit. Um, he, he isn't, as he moves forward, considering only circumcision, but he, but he opens up to the larger context of the Jewish experience. Look at two. Right, he answers, of what value is circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is, if not the most, one of the most great, uh, one of the most significant privileges given to the Jews as God's people in the Old Testament. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what are the oracles of God? It, it is not so mysterious as it sounds. Simply put, what Paul means is the Word of God that's been revealed to his people. So for us, it's the whole Bible. For the Old Testament Jew, or for the Jew that Paul's addressing in this moment, it's, it's the Old Testament as it was given. We see this phrase, oracles, in other places. It's important for us to, to understand what's being communicated here. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen was preaching he spoke about Moses, you remember, and at one point he says, this Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He, Moses, received living oracles to give to us. So at the very least, when Paul refers to oracles in, in verse 2, he, he is at a minimum making direct reference to the law that was handed down to Moses in the wilderness, right? That's accounted for us in Exodus. But referencing the oracles of God here, as, as referred to by Stephen, referring to Moses, is probably, <clears throat> is probably meant to be a stand-in here for everything that God has given, for everything that he has commanded his people in the Old Testament. So the oracles of God are indeed the law of Moses that was given, but it's also the prophecies and the other Old Testament writings with all of the promises and signs that were included with them. Everything that God used to make himself known to the people, this was their special gift, the oracles of God. There's other points where this word is used in the New Testament. Um, I suppose the only references we've looked at so far have been the New Testament. So there's Acts 7, there's where we are now. But in... Um, it's used in other places to refer to the great plan of God's gospel that's been handed down to his people by divine revelation. Just one example is Hebrews chapter 5, where the author writes, for, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Well, what's he mean? Well, he just means the, the basics of God's promises the basics of the gospel message. 
that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and that God has provided this in the Lord Jesus, and that we're to walk according to the calling to which we've been called. So the oracles, the oracles of God are these revelations of himself to his people with attention to the basic principles of the gospel. Consider here that, that possessing the oracles was worth noting by Paul because it is in the oracles that God communicates his purpose to redeem and keep a people for himself. Here, track with me. Our confession of faith talks about the Old Testament oracles. Um, it refers to them as the promises, the prophecies, the sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, that's Passover, the other types and ordinances which were delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ. The oracles of God are God's revelation of himself that specifically reveal who he is and what he's done. That the oracles of God are, are those things in Scripture. I mean, uh, let me back up. It's all of Scripture. But, but it's that wonderful declaration that all of Scripture attests to that we are sinful before a holy God, but that he has chosen to redeem us by a mediator. Paul says here that the Jews were possessors of these oracles. The word of God was written in their language. Moses and the prophets were Jews by birth. The writings were committed to the Jewish people for safekeeping and were indeed kept safe over many ages. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, think Think of all the benefit this was meant to be to them. Indeed, the outward signs were not able to save, nor are they able to save now. But the oracles of God explained to the Jewish people that the signs pointed to the one who would save. Circumcision proclaimed that the people belonged to God. The Passover declared that the people had been saved from slavery and set free under righteousness in God's kingdom, not by having to die at the just and righteous hand of God, but by having something die in their place. Paul says here in verse 2, you Jews wonder at the fact that your circumcision cannot save you. But all along, you have had the words of truth in your possession. God has been promising Paul says then, he's been promising for generations to deliver you, and all he wanted from you was that you would simply trust him and obey. And yet they failed in this. This entrusting with the oracles is not only true of the Jews, but is also true of, of all of us who have been blessed by the ministry of the church in this age. We have been given the oracles of God. Right here. Matthew Henry reflects on it by writing, the Jews were the Christians' library keepers. They were entrusted with that sacred treasure for their own use and benefit in the first place, 
and then for the advantage of the world. And in preserving the letter of the Scripture, they were very faithful to their trust. They did not lose one iota or tittle in which we are to acknowledge God's gracious care and providence. Indeed, we are glad that God entrusted the, the oracles to them so that we might have the word as it's come to us. God in his providence used the nation of Israel to bring us the word of God even here today. This is what we've been given. The very word of God that, that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament that has been kept pure and entire down through the ages that has been completed by the New Testament books and now we hold in our hands, think of it, the full and complete testimony of the will of God. And he has been pleased to reveal to us. Be careful not to commit the Jews' mistake of ignoring what God had declared to them. That salvation is not found in outward signs, but only in the Redeemer that God promised to send. And we have the benefit of being able to look back and know that he fulfilled his promise. There was great blessing given to the people, but there's also a great tragedy there in verse 2. The Jew had the oracles of God. And yet he trusted in outward things instead. He had the declarations of the Old Testament that the Lord would one day send a Savior to redeem his people. All the signs, all the promises, all the pictures in the sacrificial system and in the Passover. The Jew had the promises that God would come and replace their stony hearts with hearts of flesh. They were given the, the message of the gospel and all of the Old Testament scriptures and, and all of these signs, as our standards have already said, all of these signs pointed forward for signifying Christ to come. They all pointed forward. And yet when Jesus showed up, how many failed to trust in Him? How many failed to see Him? Beloved, you must not rest in outward means as so many Old Testament churchgoers have done. There are many people in the world who believe that being baptized and hearing a sermon once a week and participating at the table is enough to save them. And I don't... Let's say there's, there's, there's two sides of that. Some are denominations that stated outrightly, if they're worth calling denominations. You can be saved by getting some water sprinkled and saved by eating some bread and wine. That's heresy. They, they fail to maintain the integrity of the word and sacraments. But the other side of it is, is not so much, not, not so clearly stated. We must be careful that this does not creep into our hearts and that we begin to think that our outward participation in the ordinance that God has given to us for our blessing and for his praise, we best not think that these things will deliver us. Depending upon your participation in baptism or sermon hearing or, or your participation in the table is foolishness. These ordinances are wonderful blessings, but only after you have realized and believed that, that it is not the outside of you that needs saving, it's the inside of you that needs saving. 
Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus on your behalf, you are dead in sin. You must not trust in outward means, but rather trust the promise of God to save all who come to him and faith believing. And if that's what you need to hear tonight because you don't know him, I pray the Holy Spirit will write it upon your heart. And if you already know him, let it fuel your praise that he has saved you apart from any work of your own. Let it drive you to obedience and love. So, remember Paul, it's almost, well, I don't know the real definition of schizophrenia, but, but it seems, you know, in the popular sense that Paul's being a little schizophrenic. He's having a conversation with somebody that doesn't exist. So he keeps anticipating the objections of this hypothetical opponent, this Jew that he's talking to. And now he comes and asks there in verse 3, well, what if some Jews, that is, were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And at first, this may seem a little bit odd, simply because it is very common to believe that all of the Jews of the Old Testament were unfaithful. But that's not really the case. If you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know that because we've been through Hebrews 11, where over and over and over again, so many Old Testament saints are listed. And what does the author say of them? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They didn't know who Jesus was going to be, but they trusted God's promise that he would deliver them, and so he did. They, they believed, they, they had faith in the promises of God. Some failed to believe the gospel in the time of the Old Testament, but, but many Jews believed the promises and were delivered. But the question stands, what if some were unfaithful? Indeed, some of the Jews were unfaithful to the promises. They, they failed to believe in what God had declared to them in the oracles of Scripture. And the argument that Paul is working against is this, that the hypothetical Jew now is saying, okay, fine, we should have believed. We, we recognize the, the, the signs and sacraments weren't going to save us. We recognize that now. We'll give you that in the argument. But isn't the existence of unbelieving Jews proof that God's promises were also unfaithful? Doesn't their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? If some failed to be saved, doesn't this mean that God is a liar? It's a sad reality that some inside the covenant fail to believe the promises of God. Some in Israel received the sign of circumcision. They worshiped at the temple, may even have heard Jesus preach in person, and that they still failed to believe. Even today, there will be some who have been baptized, who have practiced a proper Presbyterianism, who have participated in the supper, and, and yet we'll learn in, we, we will learn in glory that they never knew God. The ordinances of God's word are not always effectual unto salvation. There were some inside of Israel, and there, even today, are some in the church who know not God through faith in Christ. 
And they never will. God promised to bring a people to himself. He promised that those who entered into his covenant and trusted his promises and walked in his ways would be saved. So, the question that's being asked, does the existence of some unfaithful Christian make God a liar? Look at four. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let the thought never linger long in your mind that God is ever unfaithful. That's the heresy that Paul's hypothetical Jew is believing. Track it. He never believed, not really, he never believed that God would save him. And so he trusted in outward things like circumcision and Passover and good works. And as he lives his life sort of falsely in the midst of God's community, he looks around and he sees other Jews who received circumcision but cared not to be faithful even by appearance to the laws that God had given. And he wonders if God has ever really been faithful to anything that he's declared. One man writes, The falsehoods of men are so often said to invalidate the veracity of God that the apostles' vehement protest is exactly to the point. And this is our warrant to defend the unchanging truthfulness of God's word against all objections of unbelief, whether voiced in the form of apostate science or philosophy or theology. Friends, it is, it is the unbelieving religious person and worldly pagans alike. Together they will tell you that God's word has failed. That They will tell you, look, look at all the hypocritical Christians that live in the world. How could there possibly be a God that's the God of them? That they claim to believe and yet they walk in all of these unrighteous, wicked ways. Sometimes it may look like the church is failing. When I left Hazelhurst, I had been pastoring two churches. And when I left, one of them had to close because they didn't have a minister or a preacher and there were only four people coming and it just wasn't worth the time anymore. Does that mean that God's church is losing? Does that, does that mean that, that, that their perceived by the world faithlessness nullifies the faithfulness of God? It may look like worldliness abounds and like goodness is one day going to die. Does this mean that all of the unfaithfulness nullifies the faithfulness of God? Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he quotes from Psalm 51. Very familiar words. We used them in our prayer just a few minutes ago. I want to read just the first four verses so you can remember the context. Have mercy on me, O God, David writes, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's the quote. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It's translated a bit differently here in Romans 3. But Paul is simply using that text to declare that when it comes down to it in the end, it is the creature who must bow to the truth of the Creator. God will always be the victor. He is always right. And so that's why David says in Psalm 51, Lord, I confess my sin to you, and my very confession validates your goodness and truth because you've declared that sin is wrong and evil and it goes against you. Jeffrey Wilson says that the image is that of a court in which God condescends to plead his case against men so that his word may be publicly vindicated. He says, it is clear that God must always emerge the victor from such a contest, for when men argue with God, they only succeed in covering themselves with shame. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Paul's Jewish opponent will try to argue that God's promises are thwarted because of some stupid, unfaithful churchgoers. But no, Christian, God will always be victorious. It's a familiar text to most of us. We hear it a certain season of the year. In Isaiah chapter 9, this, this prophecy of a Savior to come. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you know, until just recently, I had never paid much attention to the next sentence. I knew that it meant there would be a government one day in glory. But when he comes, the prophet says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What's the prophet telling us? He's saying to all of God's people... that God will never lose. That there will be an increase of His glory and of His might and of His majesty. And that one day all things will be made right. And do you know how this will be? Do you know the proof of it? Is the end of Isaiah 9 verse 7? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not because of our faithfulness that the kingdom will win. It's not because of your coming here on mornings and evenings and Wednesday nights and everything in between that will see you to glory. It is not your faithfulness that will bring you into the kingdom. Neither is it your unfaithfulness that nullifies God's faithfulness. We see it in the New Testament too, Philippians 1.6, that most of, most of us memorized as children. I am sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That this should be of immense encouragement to you. You know, it doesn't always feel like that. I don't, I don't know if today is one of those days where God's really going to bring me to glory. Hopefully he paid attention to yesterday because today just doesn't, you know, this is, he's not going to like me after today. Or maybe today he's not paying attention. 
Maybe today, obviously today he's not paying attention, or the next day he's not paying attention, or you know, however many years ago he wasn't paying attention because so-and-so got sick, or so-and-so died, or so-and-so left me, or my children aren't in the church. Don't we wonder all the time, will God really fulfill his promises? And that's what Paul is preaching. Let God be true. Though everyone were a liar, even our own hearts, we must rebel against the lies of our hearts because sometimes it creeps up and we must remember what Paul will say later on in this very book that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you the Christian life is not one of of hopelessness it's not one of wondering like this stupid Jew what's the point of all of this you know, I'm sometimes unfaithful. Other people are sometimes unfaithful. Doesn't this nullify God's faithfulness? No, Paul says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. The Christian, trust the Lord. He never lies. And again and again in his word, he has promised to preserve and protect you who are his. Thanks be to God. Amen. Father in heaven, for the sake of your dear Son, our Savior, please send the Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Show us grace, O Lord, for our unfaithfulness and remind us of that great blessing, the great truth that Paul has here described, that your your faithfulness is never nullified. You are always right and true and you will always be victorious. So help us not to trust in self. Help us not to trust in signs and outward works. But help us always to trust in your sure promises to us in our Lord Jesus.